Hello and welcome to episode 420 of the Crate and Crowbar, a gaming podcast being recorded on the 22nd of June 2023. I'm Marsh Davis and tonight I'm joined by Tom Senior. Hello. And Jamie Britton. Hello. Welcome back guys. We've been off uh, the air for a couple of weeks, partly due to holiday in my case and the opposite of holiday I guess, which is work and maybe also the other opposite of holiday, which is illness. COVID, <laughs> sadly. <laughs> but as we uh, wait for the definition of those opposites to be ratified by the Pip Tom <laughs> Opposites Committee, I entreat you to cast your minds back a week or however the fuck long it was to the summer game spectacular that never happened. Not E3. But uh, though E3 is dead, upon its fetid, swollen carcass... All manner of new beasts have begun to feast. C, slurping nervously at the dread fluids that leak from E3's fly-blown orifices, hunches the PC gaming show. There, plucking out an eyeball, is Ubisoft Forward. And there, bursting from E3's ruptured belly in a spray of effluvia, stands real human man Jeff Keighley, screaming. Just screaming and screaming. <laughs> and what is he screaming? That's right, it's games. So let's talk about some of those games, although perhaps let's deal with the format first. How was this new semi-remote, bizarrely fractured E3 for both of you? Oh, fractured is the word, I think. Um, all the sort of my favorite websites did their loyal best to sort of get everything together and make it sort of pal like give you a sort of an arrangement of the incredible number of new games, but a lot of very forgettable new games, um, a kind of swarm of disparate announcements. Um, and I actually do feel like the lack of a unified uh, kind of focal point for these announcements has kind of definitely taken the wind out of the sale of E3 season. And also, I would have thought that the one of the benefits of having E3 sort of be disparate is that you actually get to announce things at different times where you have your own space instead of everything overlapping all at once <laughs> um, and all these games still sort of fighting each other for space. So I found it to be like actually a pretty confusing uh, series of <laughs> a few weeks, to be honest, from start to finish. Um, and I've emerged with a kind of confused sense of what the gaming landscape looks like, purely based on uh, the very various shows and presentations and Nintendo Directs that have happened over the course of the last month or two. Um, it feels as though all of that could have been spread out and all of the games could have had their more space and more, you know, uh, more kind of room for people to look at them and analyse them and uh, get excited about them. It's weird if you, um, like a lot of people, like you get into video games when you're a kid and then you kind of come back to them, you, you sort of drift away from them in your 20s and then come back to them a bit later in a kind of meaningful way because if you do that, you might not necessarily know who Jeff Keighley is um, like, and then you come back to video games, and as I did in kind of my late twenties, early thirties, and like, this guy is there, and he's a big deal, <laughs> and no one's quite sure why, apart from the fact he's sort of been there forever. Um, and I, I've been I, here the whole time, and it's still inexplicable. <laughs> I can assure you. I actually, I, I actually like him. You know, I think he's, I think he's good at what he does. I think, I think when they did like the Elden Ring reveal trailer. A couple of years ago at the um at the summer games fest thing or maybe it was the game awards and him like kind of practically bursting into tears at the anticipation of him <laughs> announcing it was kind of you know it was quite cool it sort of spoke for you know i was super excited about that trailer too 
it was less exciting this year when he started off the show by saying like we're gonna have a big reveal don't you worry don't you worry gamer nation there's gonna be a big reveal Ooh, yeah and then getting to the end of the show and he was like the rumors are true here we go like this and then it was a trailer for the new final fantasy 7 remake game which we all knew was happening and is not a big deal at all and you could just almost feel the collective sigh of like oh okay right so <laughs> so no one had any rumors about this we knew that this existed so all you're doing is just making up a rumor <laughs> um, so i thought that was a bit of a a bit of a, a downer to the evening because it would have been great if they had like you know the Bloodborne remaster that everyone wants, or uh, mm. or something like that, you know. Oh yeah, that's this is the only reason I watch these things now is for the PC version of Bloodborne to be announced. Yes. It never is. It's no, but it does. It happen. still trends on Twitter about once a week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was a very strange. I find it very difficult to keep track of everything, and I felt like a lot of the yep. news sites that were reporting on it didn't really know how to. G- gather together all of the information in a way which presented the most important things first because i feel like in its heyday when the platforms were were really fighting each other uh, they all uh had their own conferences and even though that they filled those conferences with absolute bullshit and you know the Mm. the ceos never have the finger on the pulse of what actually interests the people watching those things and you know cars would be would be hung from the ceiling for no obvious reason uh, and so forth, glitz and glam that didn't really have any any relevance to games. But you always came out of those conferences with an idea of what the most exciting things were. Mm-hmm. And I found it very difficult to understand from the coverage of what the most exciting things were. And that shouldn't that shouldn't be a struggle, really, for, uh, for an, an event such as uh, whatever replaces E3. And even Jeff Keighley's own um, show s- seemed to have no discernment between announcements which were of import and <laughs> which ones were complete fluff, like getting Nicolas Cage on stage to announce that he's lent his likeness to a bad guy in the DLC for a, a, a multiplayer game that I haven't played. Just didn't seem like, well, you know, that should have ever taken up any any time or space he's not uh, even a bad guy he plays like a he's playing like a pc like one of the survivors oh is he oh right. yeah How oh, rubbish I, thought was, I thought he was the antagonist going around uh, killing people you'd, you'd hope wouldn't you like crazy nick cage it <laughs> makes sense but yeah, no he's just nick like yeah. <laughs> he's just running around um <laughs> that said all, all of that nonsense aside and how difficult it was uh, at least for me to something like extract meaning from it, I feel like this the ultimately like the slew of games that were announced was more promising this year than in previous years, and there was a bunch of stuff yes. to be excited about. I think. Um, do you guys want to jump in and discuss any any highlights that you have? I'm actually super curious about Assassin's Creed. Mm. Like, I really want to know what Mirage is going to be like to play because um, I'm really interested in the sort of genre switch. Um, or reangling of that series. Uh, obviously, it's been quite uh, quite a heavy RPG focus, lots of numbers and combat stuff like that, and it feels like it's going back to its roots, and it's going to be more of a an action game and more of a you know moment to moment stealth game, perhaps. Maybe um, very 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 <laughs> difficult to tell because they've shown surprisingly little of actually how it works so far. Um, but I feel as though that's going to be an interesting one. Um, my other the other one majorly on my radar um is starfield of course of course um partly because 
I love the idea of that kind of near future sort of NASA styling uh, space exploration game um, with the kind of budget and the resources behind it that Bethesda have applied to the Elder Scrolls games and things. That's obviously an appeal, but also because I know it's going to be hilarious. Like <laughs> it's just the, the way that Bethesda tend to roll out these games. They're always a like let's be honest a bit rough <laughs> and there's going to be loads of funny stories and interesting broken quests or funny ways that people are going to break the game <laughs> um yeah and that's i think, I think they, delight. Yeah. they tapped into something by uh because they had a, a what was it called starfield direct where it was mm. like a half an hour of footage from the game interspersed with um, anecdotes and discussion with the actual devs themselves. I think they 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 tapped into a thing hitherto less mentioned in the promotion of Bethesda's uh, massive RPGs, which is you know filling your starship hold full of sandwiches that you've stolen. And that <laughs> that kind of like outre prattery uh, <laughs> seems to be really the big engine uh, behind those games. Yeah, um, and less about. All of the other stuff they typically promote. Um, they also I did. Say, they also did a very good um, 2001 uh, match cut of a sandwich in a spaceship, which was uh, <laughs> yes, which was <laughs> that was very good, very funny. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was the, that was the best. Genuinely, that was the best moment in their entire thing. I, I say I began. I was pretty skeptical of it because this past showing, I felt very bland to me. Uh, that I think that in the last time we saw footage from it the very first interaction they demonstrated was like harvesting some ore uh with a mining laser Hell yeah. uh, one of the most boring possible things you can do in the game no. what do you um, mean that it's the best possible video <laughs> thing you could do in any game uh the promise of a thousand planets is a, is an odd one i feel like that is a line that is pure marketing spaff in that mm. it's a big yeah. enough number to prevent handcrafting which is worrying to me um but it's also quite a bit smaller than infinity uh which is generally <laughs> what you you get with procgen right i mean if they can generate a thousand planets they can absolutely generate an infinity of planets they will just not necessarily be interesting you know as illustrated by no man's sky but i think i feel like they've they've set the the limit at a thousand because that's a bigger number than most people will ever explore but it avoids that marketing line which came yes. back by yeah. the no man's sky devs um but i don't know that a thousand is still a good number like it just that i mean it's just going to be like like i said go for five man <laughs> just have five yeah. planets that's fine i like the i think it's very handsome just in its in itself like the engine is obviously uh very accomplished and the combat looks quite peppy i like i love the the, the sort of bootstrap nasa uh look that they've gone for but in other regards like they seem to have very intentionally ticked off sci-fi cliches so there's mm. like oh there's a cyberpunk planet there's a pleasure planet there's a cowboy in space planet for some reason and you know like i know that they they they're obviously doing that intentionally because they're going for a broad audience and that broad audience loves generic stuff or at least they'll love one of the gen genres on offer but it doesn't yet feel like a game with anything to say for itself yet mm -hmm. like the, the, uh, the customization of stuff looks wonderful i know i'm going to lose hours building my spaceship but like i i feel like i'm increasingly less interested in the sort of pitch of go anywhere do anything this is a tabula rasa this adventure is yours to make i actually want more of an authorial 
voice in games. Like I want to be told something or taught something or brought to some revelation that I wouldn't have while sort of noodling away in a masturbatory self-directed entertainment. Um, I went to, I, I went to a cafe the other day for a, <laughs> like a, a quick snack before a long car drive. And uh, I got the chicken sandwich and the lady was like, well, what would you like on that? And uh, I was like, well, I guess I'd like the contents of a chicken sandwich that I hope that you would have imagined for me. Um, and she was like, no. <laughs> uh, what? What, what you get with a chicken sandwich, unless you specify otherwise, are two dry halves of a bun and a piece of chicken. And anything else you have to tell me. And I realized that, like, and I, obviously that's, that's good for people who have dietary requirements. And particularly here in America, people like to be able to detail every component of a meal. But for me, like, the reason I come to a cafe or a restaurant and the reason I don't just make my own chicken sandwich is that I want their expertise. I want their discretion, their sense of taste, their passion, their culinary inspiration. I want them to tell me what they think is an amazing, delicious, life-changing chicken sandwich. And then I will go, sure, whatever, it sounds good. <laughs> then I'll eat it and I'll gain further weight and feel bad about myself. But I feel the same way about games. Like, freedom is great. But like, what are you saying? Like, what's your what's your story? What's your thesis? What is the thing that you want to tell people and make them feel? And give me that. And like, I don't feel I get that from Bethesda games very often. The games have a lot of stuff in them, and hours of them are good. Absolutely, that's I, you know, I I like those games. But the the hours that are good are also adrift in a sea of like experiential porridge that doesn't always have any particular flavor, and. Just going by the narrative slash design choices that they've surfaced for the videos so far, they don't sell me on the idea that they, they personally have any fiction that they want to tell, that they are motivated to tell people. It's space pirates and it's alien artifacts again. And mm. it's spacemen in cowboy hats, like Firefly, a thing that already exists. It's our experiments are being disrupted by the local wildlife. Could you handle it? And, you know... Sure, the ship construction, the base building and so forth looks very, very cool. But I'm not sure yet that I want to invest my time into that kind of creativity if the setting in which that happens otherwise does not invite my curiosity. Yeah, sort of, let's think about the, the Fallout, Fallout, Fallout games that Tesla made. Actually, they had really good interesting self-contained quests you go to a vault and it would be a whole kind of self-contained mission with a, its own story and this vision of the world and then you could wander into like a whole vicinity in one of them and it would be owned by a faction that harked back to the romans and you'd have to sort of like convince them and uh there was definitely sort of a a kind of crude factional interaction between different state like places in the world that was really fun and interesting and actually often played for laughs um, often like very like funny outcomes um, you had I think Fallout 3 there were uh, some people dressed up in cardboard suits pretending to be superheroes in one corner of the map and that was this whole self-contained story and what I would hope for from stuff like Starfield is it seems like it's very serious in comparison to all of those comparisons but I'd love to sort of land on a planet or set up a base somewhere and sort of find a story like that and I really hope that that sort of creativity and that, that kind of sense of fun is still present in like you might have to find it but it's still there in Bethesda RPGs but uh, yeah it's hard to, obviously that's probably not the thing you put first in your market, marketing materials but I really hope that's there still in Starfield yeah. I would think I would say that 
you know, you, the thing is with like the Fallout games, for example, is that they're built on a universe that was created by someone else, right? It was created by mm. Interplay in the 90s. And I would say that it's a much more, um, uh, it's conceived with a much more originality and like kind of specific choice making than I would say the Elder Scrolls games, which I have never really, um, you know, had much to say about the lore or the world building or sort of anything in those games. You know, they're basically, um, you know, they 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 provide a, a good sort of, I would say, at best, solid fantasy world for you to play around in. But it, it you know, it, it's not a game. It's not a world. It's not like a universe that you carry around with you. You know, it's not like. Um, you know, Lord of the Rings, or even like something like a, out of like a Dark Souls game, or something like that. Like the, the there is a, a wonderful sense of place, certainly, but there's very little sense of character. I think to to Oblivion and and, and Skyrim and, and things like that. I think they they do they do other stuff well, and I, I I would very much agree that I think at the moment Starfield is just looking very like like a like a butter sandwich <laughs> um or a, an ungarnished chicken sandwich um as you say i just think i was really i really want to be more excited about it but i do think they've just made a bunch of very generic decisions and i i wish they hadn't really i i think you know to sort of bolt together modular versions of a bunch of different sci-fi tropes and ideas that we know from elsewhere and just sort of hope that that kind of works as a playground for players i don't know i i I think it would have been more interesting and exciting if they if they built like if you think about how weird and wonderful the universe of um, mass effect is um and how many unusual and bold choices there are in there. It doesn't run away from every single trope imaginable. In fact, it embraces just about all of them. But it twists and and kind of changes those things into something that's like identifiably original. Um, and maybe they will in this game. And maybe they're just sort of you know playing to the playing to the crowds um, in that trailer that they're showing. Um, so I would hope that they go for a less conservative interpretation of those. Of those tropes, definitely. Imagine if um, all of that technology, you know, all of this effort was put into a game based on The Expanse, uh, which mm. I think Telltale have uh, an Expanse game coming up. Um, but The Expanse is um, an intensely political take on how humanity might expand within the solar system. And there are, you know, uh, factions, and there's some really cool hard sci-fi stuff about how humans will grow differently in zero g compared to humans who grow on mars in like lower g and humans who grow on um earth like with you know one g and even just even those physical differences have an impact on how they interact and how diplomatic you know exchanges work and where you meet and things like that Uh, and there's also you know fiercely hard sci-fi idea of how space combat works in terms of just flinging objects and having them infinitely accelerate through uh, you know it through space uh swing around a planet and hit something and that kind of stuff that that kind yeah. of hard sci-fi um energy that it feels as though aesthetically starfield is channeling it feels as though there's no there's nothing behind it uh, not that i demand that it be an expanse game but that as an example of how that type of um right you know environment and that, that type of fictional situation can be exciting and actually say something about people rather than just the uh, cyberpunk pleasure planets mm. 
<laughs> horny in space, come to Blowjob yeah. City. <laughs> I just, I, honestly, I, I, it's just most just about one of the most tired tropes. Um, I, I wish they hadn't shown that. <laughs> oh, it's, you see, I can. Bo- I, I can just about take that, but it's the Firefly-like setting. Like when Firefly first came out, it was I was like, "Oh, it's a western, but it's in space." I see. Yeah. But yeah. I feel like I, I feel like there's there's a part of uh, game development which thinks it can just put a cowboy hat on something, and suddenly it channels this idea of rugged frontiersmanship to everybody who plays it. Whereas mm. my main intertext for cowboy hats are male strippers. And it doesn't <laughs> it just doesn't have the same meaning to me. Uh, I don't think it has the same meaning outside of America even. So it's always weird to me where they, you know, you get this kind of swaggering cowboy thing in space. I just it just feels like, oh that, that's that clearly wouldn't happen. Like that's hundred percent not the future we're going towards. I think it was um maybe in direct response to that clip, but someone posted on Twitter the thing from Futurama where they're able to go in to the edge of the reality and look across at the alternative reality, and it's all of them, all of the future armor gang, all wearing all wearing cowboy hats. <laughs> and then someone says, "Oh, and there is an infinite number of uh, different dimensions." And then someone says, "No, it's just these two. <laughs> 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 Very yeah. funny. Yeah. I, I feel like you do need like just whether it's a hard sci-fi or not. It doesn't need to be hard sci-fi, but I feel like whenever you come up with the world for your game, you need to have some fictional core to it which well they have it's nasa punk nasa punk mush they said it several times during the uh, presentation there but i'm I'm not sure that bleeds out into the other parts of it in any meaningful Mm. way because you've abandoned nasa punk as soon as you go to the cyberpunk place you've abandoned as soon as you go to the far firefly like setting space pirates have no nasa punk uh, frills to them as far as i can see it's just there's no kind of you you need you need things that are your your raison d'etre, like some kind of motivational core, which which then affects the rest of your world building. Otherwise, you're just otherwise you're the reason for your world building is we wanted to make a game with a bunch of different settings in it. And I'm sure, like within the constraints of those different settings, the quest builders will come up with interesting stories where their authorial merit will emerge. But like just there's no kind of top level to that fiction which feels coherent or interesting to me. And I feel like that the whole do anything freedom mantra of a certain subsection of gamers, which at one point sort of included me, was partly justified in the early 2000s by how bad the constrained linear stories were in the games of that era for the most part. But now I feel like for a good five to ten years, uh, there's been a massive diversification of the audience and the talent making games, and it allows us to tell much more interesting stories. Not necessarily mm. linear stories, but obviously authored stories. And it wasn't the it wasn't the authorship that was necessarily a problem, or even the linearity. It was that the stories that were being told in the early 2000s were invariably about a bald, angry man who has to hit or shoot things because <laughs> they put his wife in a giant metal sarcophagus or whatever. <laughs> and now you have like Citizen Sleeper with its sequel just being announced at the same conference. And that's about like a, a, a robotic refugee whose very consciousness is a byproduct of indentured servitude, trying to make a life, you know, in the collapse of space capitalism. And, that, you know, whatever you think about, whether that appeals to you or not, that's clearly a story that somebody set out because they wanted to tell it and mm. not because it 
it you know it appealed to an eight to twelve teenage boy demographic, or that it could be outfitted with extractive microtransactions. <laughs> not not that Starfield promises microtransactions. No. So that was that was a completely misleading argument. But, but, but it but... is true that it is true that back then we were we were very anxious about like space and games, like like literal space and environments in which we could explore. You know, and I think you're absolutely right that that might have been a bit of a misnomer. And what we actually wanted was emotional and stories, uh, stories and you know yeah. so it was less the less you know you see those mountains in the distance you can climb them it's more you see those mountains in the distance they are a metaphor for your mother's breasts <laughs> and your <laughs> and your repressed childhood yeah it's, actually weirdly like this goes to mind like something like sun the sea or like the fallen london universe as an example like i think there are, there are loads of examples of this where um you do feel as though you, you're still guiding your own story but um whenever you land on an island or go to a given port the whole the world you're surrounded by is saying something about how um unregulated guilds are exploiting humans in this place <laughs> you know it's, it's, it's actually mm. like quite political um and and or in this other place uh, there are three uh crones who might be witches but actually when you sort of talk to everyone they don't seem to actually have powers and yet, they just own this island for some reason, and it, it's it, and you act within those parameters. And obviously, it, it would be absurd, and it would ruin the whole game if you could sort of go and just shoot them all, which is the old video game thing to do, uh, the classic video game uh, solution to those problems. Um, but I kind of yeah, I, it, 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 that criticism of Starfield resonates because I don't think that's ever going to happen in that game. Uh, at a guess, <laughs> I think that's a fair guess, though. I feel I feel a certain amount of sort of sort of sympathy, but like it's a tricky problem they have to engage with because they are, you know, they they've been around for a long time. They've been making games like this for a long time, and people definitely want games like this. There's a certain yep. breed of gamer yeah. for this is the only game they want, right? This is the only game they'll play really, and they're super looking forward to it because their favorite game is basically whatever. Bethesda make and so like I certainly see that it's not they it's not necessarily the easiest decision to go like right let's make a completely something completely different and it's you know it takes place in fractal space and and there's no reference points to anything anyone's seen before um but I mean it'll be it'd be interesting I mean you know perhaps the promises about scale and size are true and there will be room in there for a whole bunch of unusual and interesting uh stuff along with the more you know, um, cowboys in space type vibes. Mm. Um, it'll certainly be an exciting game. You know, I, I think like getting in a spaceship and f- taking off from a planet and f- shooting some aliens in the sky and then landing on another planet is always going to be pretty good. I think. Oh yeah, like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then like the the combat actually looks really quite good. Yeah, from from Definitely. what I've seen. So I'm excited yeah, okay. for that. And I like How I like the look of the sorry. I like the look of the spaceship building, and I like that you could board people's spaceships like. Shooting mm. some fools and then and then landing on them and going in there and shooting them in the head. I mean, that's pretty good, isn't it? That's pretty bad. <laughs> that's video games. <laughs> sorry, I've, I've had one gin and tonic, so that, <laughs> that was why there was a breast choke and uh, and me using the word fools. <laughs> How do you guys feel about the revolutionary, never before seen uh, fiction, completely original of Star Wars Outlaws? <laughs> I've I've watched um, Andor, which is a fantastic 
television show and i think even if you don't know anything about star wars that's a really good show about a, a good a space rogue uh trying to survive and getting into scrapes um and i don't want a video game that's just watching that like do I, am i actually going to be able to be an outlaw in in the star wars universe that's an amazing premise like it's such a good idea um but i don't know like to what extent your is it going to be like a super linear story where uh like in uh, the, the recent jedi game like it's, it's a very like conceived path for your character throughout um or am i actually good at like to what basically my main question is how much skullduggery can i can i get into in this one and and for, for the game to survive and let me sort of play. Yeah, it's a hard question to answer based on the footage they've shown. Oh yeah, it's always it's nothing. Probably yeah. quite canned, um, <laughs> but I, I found it reasonably charming. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it certainly doesn't look like a, an obvious misfire in terms of fulfilling the, the Star Wars fantasy. How about you, Jamie? Yes, actually, I did manage to see that particular trailer, um, so I, I, I have nothing on that. Um, I'll tell you one kind of completely opposite trailer that I really like the look of. I can't quite remember which one it was. I think it might have been announced during the PC Gaming Fest. was um, Baby Steps, which is the new game oh, from... Yeah. Uh, oh, no, it was, oh, during yeah. the, um, it was during the Devolver Digital thing, it was. Baby Steps, the new game from Bennett Foddy, um, mm. which is basically Quop but Skyrim. Um, <laughs> and, like, you know, this is a game... Um, so, basically, you uh, you are sucked through your TV into... Skyrim slash Middle Earth, and then I guess you're just having to sort of uh, using difficult key inputs walk your way through this world. Um, uh, it looks like a game I will never play, and I think it's probably quite <laughs> intended to be a game that lots of people won't play, but people will um, stream on Twitch and and things like that because it turns out that Bennett Foddy games like this and uh, getting over it are really excellent like spectator sports. Um, but I just, it really, really made me laugh in a way that trailers almost never do. There's an argument at the end of it between the protagonist and some random guy who is played by Bennett Foddy, who's got this great um, <laughs> accent. I love Bennett Foddy's voice. He's got this kind of wonderfully wry, slightly sarcastic, but quite friendly uh, Australian accent. And they just have a really fantastic bit of like Flight of the Concord style bickering at the end of this trailer. <laughs> and yeah, I just think it looks, it looks really good fun, really interesting. And I, I love... Uh, anything that comes out of uh, Bennett Fonny's uh, deranged mind. So I'm yeah, super <laughs> excited about that one. Uh, you guys excited for Alan Wake 2? Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's the noise I would make about Alan Wake. I, I feel I enjoyed Alan Wake, but I feel as though uh, like a collection of games journalists fell in love with it a bit too much. They weren't me. i love i love remedy as well um but i feel as though it's one of their weakest i actually haven't played the what's the microsoft game they did uh that's that was sort of like quantum something anyway oh yeah quantum break break, yeah it was quantum break um which i have not played actually but the video game which was also a tv show yeah yeah. Mm. (laughs) and it was somehow (laughs) neither um (laughs) Uh, so yeah, I, I, I always felt like Alan Wake was pretty far down on uh, Remedy's sort of list of cool stuff that they're doing. I'm way more interested in co- the Control universe and what they're going to do next there. Um, well, are they not merging the two? I feel like Alan Wake. They, there there are enough... crossovers, right? Okay, uh, 
so that there yeah. are notes you could find in control that Alan Wake definitely exists in the same universe and um he's discovered objects that they're interested in like it's letters that you find around the place that you're exploring in control so yeah the the universe is definitely linked up um and I think there's actually perhaps it's DLC or something that's quite explicit there is but... I believe control uh, DLC that that is actually starring Alan Wake I think yeah I think he he, he appears and you sort of see him I don't think he plays him or, or anything by, but he's by overwhelming public demand <laughs> <laughs> Alan Wake um appears in this um perhaps yeah. if it's actually you know that's for me the best angle if uh Anaway 2 is actually kind of segue into uh, the control universe that would be pretty cool actually i'd be interested in playing it i Looking found the trailer it, though, i found the trailer quite underwhelming yeah I, I predict it's going to be actually excellent i think is i think it, <laughs> i think it trails badly but i think what it's actually going to be is a really really meaty survival horror resident evil 4 experience um that's just my guess about like i don't know just based on instinct i guess that's how it's feeling to me mm-hmm. at the moment so i'm actually looking forward to this despite the trailer <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah same i'm i'm also sort of looking forward to despite alan wake <laughs> yeah cuz mm. the first game i i, I found the I physically i didn't get get on with it i found like the control of it and like the the pace of it and the sense of combat just didn't jibe with me at all but also the a weird thing about it which i uh, which occurred to me was i was thinking why i have this antipathy towards alan wake is that the, the, like the pastiche of sh- of schlock horror paperback fiction hmm. just doesn't sit with me in the same way that I enjoyed Max Payne's like completely absurd, yeah. absurd, excessive take on noir cliche. <laughs> because like to compare the two, like the golden age of noir cinema absolutely has all of the stuff that Max Payne is spoofing. Like, you know, I could tell the dame was trouble from the start, that kind of thing. You know, <laughs> yeah. that's that is a real thing that occurs in all all the most kind of famous exemplars of the genre. But Alan Wake, the character, the writer, uh, is at the sentence level a fucking awful writer. Yeah, you know, and that th- those cliches that he's spouting aren't actually present in the best examples of that genre. Like Stephen King, mm. I'm not, I'm not like super well versed in him, but I've read a few of his books, and as far as I can tell, he's a skillful and efficient writer who does not necessarily rely overly on cliche and so there's just this mismatch for me really in the entire kind of thing that it's that it's doing uh, between what i like about good horror writing and what the game is telling me horror writing is like and mm. so i couldn't really enjoy it as a pastiche and that's always sort of like i, I don't know though and because it's so much about that you know the monsters from the id alan wake is creating these monsters by writing about them his name itself is a pun uh, <laughs> all this kind of stuff hangs kind of gloomily over the entire thing but from what they've shown of the game and what I know of the of the of the writers working on it who've come from elsewhere outside of Remedy, it feels like I don't think they're going to necessarily rely on that pulp narration as a crutch as much. Like one of the protagonists isn't uh, a writer, so that probably helps them dig dig themselves of that. <laughs> Thank God for that. <laughs> that uh, Although the character is called Saga, so you know <laughs> they still they still got the puns. Um, but they also referenced True Detective as a touchstone, so uh, you know I'm 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 in there. Um, I mean, I'm down with that. They aren't looking to to cliched examples of the genre as as uh, reference. I also feel like they're a clever bunch at Remedy, and they they have a good sense of humour, and I think they have a sense of humour mm-hmm. about themselves. So I can't imagine they would go full blown Alan Wake 
monologuing about a you know a dog from 19 different angles where you know where you're going so it, the dog was myself but it was also my brother and when i saw my brother <laughs> that day i thought he was a dog it turns out he was both you know all that sort of stuff so like i can't imagine they're going to do that irony free like they did last time you know i think i think they'll probably find a different angle on it there are a few other cool-looking games. We don't. I don't know much about them, but they 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 look good. They they look like they have something to say. I guess is what I'm going for. There's uh, Kunitsugami: Path of the Goddess, which is uh, I guess it's like a third-person action game, but it's sort of like a Kabuki fever dream. Lots of swishing, billowing uh, dresses and uh, dancing swords and stuff in this crazy neon world um that looks awesome i have no idea really what it is um agreed it looked mental <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm into south of midnight that's southern gothic fantasy from the we happy few developers I, we didn't see any gameplay from it but involved uh, a very large skeleton man playing a banjo uh in the swamp so that's uh that's cool i thought um world of horror looked really cool Mm. Uh, on the back burner, like um, it's kind of black or white. It looks like a sort of text adventure, but a detective game at the same time. But it's also obviously just immediate horror themes. <laughs> uh, given that in the first few images that I saw of the game, there's a guy just with no flair, no skin, just <laughs> some sort of flesh dude. <laughs> yeah, I've played, I've played a fair bit of that. It's been in early access for years. Ah, right, right, right. Oh, right. Chris actually spoke about it on the podcast a few years ago as well. Oh, um, cool. It's very good. It's uh, I don't actually know what this reference means, but there, I believe there is a card game called Arkham something, Arkham Horror, or something like that. Arkham Horror. Uh, Arkham Horror, yeah. So I believe it's very similar to that, but with, yeah, like Junjito um, sort of styling. Yeah. It's, it's great. It has those really good, like, jump scares um, that Junjito can do when you turn the page around. Yes, you know, yes, yes. Uh, and see some sort of hideous, twisted face. It's pretty much always a hideous, twisted face in something. A face shouldn't no, be. No, for in. sure. Um, but yeah, it's it's really good. The writing's great, and the music's really good, and it has a the visual styling is like almost like um, eight uh, bit uh, Mac PC sort of eighties vibes to it, um, mm. which is really cool. Yeah, I, I I'm really looking forward to the full release of that. I did that thing where I was like, oh, this is great. I'm just going to wait for a couple of years for it to yeah. come out so I can play the full experience. I was, I was about to ask you, Jamie, like, is it worth picking up in early access now, or is it worth waiting? I feel like I mean, it's worth waiting. Personally. I think it's probably worth waiting just because I did that thing with Darkest Dungeon 2 recently where I, I played it for the, like, the last two weeks of early access that lasted two years, and that was a bad idea. I should have just waited. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's great. It's 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 mad and weird with um, really good vibes. Um, so I yeah, strong recommend on that. I think, that I, think awesome. it's, I think it'll be getting like 80s and 90s reviews when mm. it comes out. I wouldn't be surprised at all. Fantastic. I'm excited about Jusant as well, or Jusant, I don't know mm. how you pronounce it. It's a, a climbing game from Don't Nod, um, and it just it looks looks beautiful. But I, I feel just like the idea of climbing as like the central uh, interaction in a game is is a rich vein that games haven't really dug into. Obviously, like Shadow of the Colossus and various Zelda games have like a stamina constrained climbing system in them, but um, I don't know that they're the central experience in the same way like i, I think two, two games in recent memory have done that which is grow home and grow up where you're, you're basically the entire challenge is about you know ascent uh and they're tremendous I, I i'm excited to play that as well it's, it's weird that climbing is actually like really core to loads of games but not actually mechanically so getting to the top of the highest point 
towers and Ubisoft games. Um, mm. The thing, the first thing everyone does probably in Skyrim is try to get to the highest point. Uh, out of just sheer instinct, you get to the top p- part of the world and you expect a reward for it. But in terms of, as someone who's done a bit of sort of like bouldering and rock climbing and stuff, the actual mechanics of actually the difficulty of overhangs and dealing with situations, very few games have, have tackled it. Um, the last Frankly, one I remember... how, it, how it's going to work in Assassin's Creed Mirage, I assume it's just going to be the, the, the same sort of auto-scaling. Holds down R2 and, and then your guy just does it, yeah. Um, whereas um, the only, the closest thing I've ever played to that was a VR game. I'm afraid I can't remember the name of it. Um, whereas actually you're reaching out and grabbing handholds and then having to secure a different handhold and then having to like move your weight around a lot of rock climbing in my experience is like positioning your weight like where you put your body in relation to your arms and then swinging sometimes to get to difficult positions and stuff like that um like bouldering is awesome and it feels like it should be a rich vein for video games if anyone could sort of distill that experience into a uh, like a control scheme that actually works <laughs> um that isn't just annoying um but yeah, I agree. It's, mm. it's definitely a big thing. Um, one game I want to mention, just because, Marsh, when we did this like last year, I think, for the exact same thing, we mentioned it then, which is the game Cocoon, which is the Beatles and Marbles game from oh, yeah. the uh, the inside, uh, the ex-Playdead uh, um, developer, um, which continues to look just completely bonkers and weird. Um, but I just, li- I just enjoy that we've been tracking its development now for so long. Um, and uh, yeah, that was actually not trailed, but it was. There's some, there's like a good um, preview of it on. I think you're a gamer. Um, yeah, I'm just checking. Yeah, you're a gamer about that game. It just looks really fascinating and mad and beautiful. Um, so yeah, and, and as I said, then uh, anything uh, the inside devs do, as long as it's not that fucking Somerville, um, <laughs> I will absolutely um, play. <laughs> Fable two. Oh, oh, Fable. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Um, sorry, Oxford Free 2, just as a shout out. I know nothing much about it, but the first game was awesome. I'm really excited about where that one goes next. Uh, but Fable also, yeah, go. please carry on, Marsh. Oh, well, I mean, that, that's really all you can say about it. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> it's true. It's just a, a fully CG trailer starring a very big Richard Ayoade, which is uh, which was very funny, I thought. Um, yeah. So that's promising. Um but in every other regard, still a big unknown. But I did, I did enjoy the trailer. Yeah, it was yeah. a genuine, genuinely funny trailer. Yeah, yeah. which, yeah. Is, which is so rare, rare isn't it? Yeah. You, a lot of yeah. it's like, like, oh, I'm not even trying to find this funny. This is genuinely <laughs> funny. Yeah, I will say that uh, it is true that it's of all the trailers you know watched over the last few weeks that a lot of them are quite bad and a lot of mm. them are quite you know meat and potatoes. And so it was really nice to see. A giant CGI version of Richard Ayoade's face, you know, talking to you directly. You know, no one else bothered to do that, so it's like uh, <laughs> I was very, very glad and happy to see that stuff, and with some good gags in there too, which you know, it's just not easy. I, not easy to be funny in CGI. I, mm-hmm. I, I don't think so. Uh, yeah, really good. Uh, Lies of P. Uh, I have they oh, had yeah. a new demo for this, um, which I played up until the boss of. This is the game which is Bloodborne. What if Bloodborne but Pinocchio? Um, it's it's really like it really embraces that as its as its sort of design pillar. Um, I really like it. I think it's it's it. I mean, it's it's hard to describe it in, as anything other than 
Bloodborne, Pinocchio, because it's clearly hugely indebted to to um, you know the FromSoft game, um, <laughs> the setting, the sound, the move set. It's got the parrying from Sekiro in it. Um, it's got big monsters. It's got a regen system. It's got you know it's like the best of FromSoft games in this kind of new package, but with very Bloodborne styling. Um, and I played through the demo, and it's. <sighs> It's interesting. I, you know, it's there's still this kind of weird holy grail thing of someone to make the first actually good Souls game that aren't from software. Like they've been like, I suppose the best anyone's done is like a decent go at one, but no one's ever made like a real knockout, um, which I think is amazing. Personally, that like only FromSoft can make these games as good as they are. Um, but this looks like a fair attempt on it, and I think. You know, if the game kind of is able to expand on its ideas as it moves forward and, um, you know, show you some kind of crazy sights in that kind of FromSoft way and some disgusting monsters and beasties, then I think it might be in for a, a shot for be something uh, really special. Um, the You know, what it doesn't want to do is fall into the trap of a lot of previous Souls-like, whereas actually once you get into them, there isn't that kind of sense of discovery and depth. Um, that's what I think people find so hard to um, recreate in a Souls-like. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if they can do that, particularly as it, it literally is a game full of, you know, Geppetto and puppets and uh, a lead character who can only be described as uh, uh, a near actionable facsimile of Timothy Chalamet. So uh... <laughs> I, I, I'm not really familiar with the the story uh, Pinocchio beyond the the Disney adaptation, but it does does the story justify having this large dark world to explore? Um, I'm only vaguely familiar with it. I mean, it's bleak. The story, original story, is bleak and horrible in the way that all children's stories were, you know, before a certain point in time. Mm. Yeah, but it doesn't um, premise like there's a world full of mechanical horrors that you have to do battle with. I don't know where. I don't know where the two things really meet. They, well, they absolutely don't. Oh. <laughs> but, but when you um, start up the game, it doesn't say loading. It says lying. Dot dot dot. Oh. And also, oh, it cute. says, <laughs> yeah. And also, <laughs> is there like a you... loading bar, which is just a nose extension? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know why they didn't do that. And also, when you when you get to the title screen, it says press triangle to start. Press triangle. What is this? It just felt like complete devilry. I've been pressing X <laughs> or at a push circle to start a game for decades now, and someone comes in with triangle. It's like, mm. whoa, messing with my head, man. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Well, I, I, so what was that? A demo? Was that in early access? What is what is it that you played? There was a bad trailer, um, which followed on from a better trailer I'd seen before. There was like one of those ones that's called a story trailer or whatever, which is a bunch of bits from cutscenes sort of stitched together. Uh, and then, yeah, a demo, which you can still play, I think, okay. um, on all platforms. Um, and that's, yeah, that was good. I should, I should play it. Um, weirdly, I've sort of very unfairly lumped it in my mind, with the Gollum, the, <laughs> the awful Gollum game. <laughs> and, uh, which is really unfair, but... I, I wanted to, to dis- discuss a piece of news which is relevant to that, because uh, the um, the Embracer Group, which owns uh, many, many studios now, and also mm. the Lord of the Rings license, announced that right. it was going to close a lot of the studios it just bought and cancel the games they're making. Um, and the, the um, uh, COO... Uh, in a press conference, Matthew Karch uh, said this, I have a high degree of confidence that this entire process is going to easily translate into better product selection that's more profitable and that gives us a greater opportunity for growth in the future and that helps to leverage the IP that we own within our organization. (laughs) I mean, we own Lord of the Rings. 
we know we need <laughs> to be exploiting Lord of the Rings in a very significant fashion and turn that into one of the biggest gaming franchises in the world. And that's obviously something that we're going to be doing. That's a much better use of resources than some of the other projects that some of our teams have been working on. So, um, I mean, we're, I, we're never going to see another Deus Ex game, <laughs> is what I'm taking away from that. <laughs> no, but, but also, also Marsh, look, I, I'm ready to give you all of my money right now for whatever you need after after saying that you know <laughs> it, this boggles my mind this whole thing like uh, there's, yeah i, I guess they just no want to turn everything into a, a lord of the rings farm basically which is hmm. uh, dismaying just like just the consolidation of of uh game studios it seems invariably means like a constricting of creative possibilities hmm. in, a, in a really dismaying way um yeah, this Mang is right, because when they started buying everyone up, everyone was like, who are these people? And how can they afford all of these, um, you know, well-respected uh, and highly skilled game developers? And the answer is, well, they can't. <laughs> you know, they're, they're not going to afford them. They're going to consolidate them. Um, hmm. It's a real shame. Yep. Anyway. This <laughs> is a sad story. <laughs> yeah. Should we talk about the, um, the game that we've all been playing this week? Which is Diablo Four? Mm. What a lot of clicking, eh? <laughs> Aren't all games just clicking though? <laughs> in the end, <laughs> this one in particular. Yeah, you're right. I, I'd love to say, like, I would say I have a love hate relationship with this game, but my emotions are not that extreme in either direction <laughs> to qualify that statement. <laughs> it's literally just like sometimes I'm slightly happy. Sometimes I'm slightly irritated, and in the in the middle bit, it's just fucking sponge. <laughs> yeah, I would say um, that is yeah. very much the defining quality of it. That I find it extremely unstimulating uh, mm. to play. Um, I, I think Jamie, you previously said it's almost a clicker game, and I, I, I think that's exactly right. Not that I hate that. I, I like like Tom. I find it struggle to feel particularly strongly about it, but. I can't say I, I, I like it or it's time well spent. <laughs> it's um, extraordinary. It is an extraordinary thing, Diablo. I've, I've, I've come to realise as I've played through it over the last couple of weeks that it is absolutely, as the kids would say, mid. But there's something <laughs> like really wonderful and compulsive about it, but not compulsive like good drugs or like, <laughs> you know, something really exciting. It's compulsive like... I don't know, like prodding up the hole where your tooth used to be or, you know, um, eating some pr- plain cashews out of a bowl. It's just kind <laughs> of, it's fascinating. I find it so fascinating what the experience of it is because Diablo is, again, it's one, of, you know, it's one like the Bethesda open world RPG. It's one of the kind of fundamental forms of gaming, right, that they invented essentially um, and has and has been basically pulled through the entire history of the medium up to this point um, and has come with a whole bunch of weird baggage and evolution and idiosyncrasy along the way. Um, But the core loop is basically always the same, right? And they've made this game, which is like, you know, they've returned to the sort of violent, dark imagery of of previous games after the kind of cosmic stuff in in the last one. And... You know, it's got this like beautifully grim, dark aesthetic and stuff like that. But ultimately, it is a clicker game. It is a game about making numbers go up, and it is a game about doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. 
And I'd say this, honestly, there's nothing wrong with it at all. Like, it's a really enjoyable experience. But you're you're bang on the money, Tom, in that, like, it's enjoyable to a point. It's compulsive to a point. It's addictive to a point. But it is in a kind of really unusual sort of space where it's kind of those things are all kind of okay. Like, it's just a sort of very comfortable, homely place to be. Yeah. Yeah, and like, I don't mind that that it cost me 60 quid, right? 60 quid game. That's just what games cost Mm. now. And I was a bit worried and anxious that I would feel like, you know, that was a waste of money because it's a considerable amount of money for a game which is just clicking. Um, But actually, it feels really substantive. It feels like that's the thing I really like about I think. It feels massive. It feels really like there's just tons of stuff to do and tons of places to go and things to see. And it does seem to sort of... (laughs) almost be like a big comfy armchair that you can sort of settle down into and just not think about the world uh, or anything really in a kind of slightly opiate way it's it's so it's so hard to categorize this game and when we mentioned it a couple of weeks ago marsh i said like a lot of the reviews had said it's great but it's definitely a a live service game everything is caveated and when you're playing it, I feel like all its qualities are caveated in some way or compromised in some way, in a way that isn't like a vorpal flaw, but just makes it such a, a a unique and not necessarily in a good way experience. I realize I'm sort of talking around my points endlessly, but I do find it's a, a game that's quite hard to to summarize as a qualitative experience. Tom, you've you've had a lot more experience with the the series than I have. I mean, like I've I've played them, I've dabbled in them, I've diabloed dabbled <laughs> in them, but I I'm, I wouldn't say I, I'm, I've spent a lot of time there. But you have, right? How does how does this one compare to the the preceding games? I think the first thing I would say is I would challenge. There's a sort of like narrative out there that this is a return to Diablo 2's tone and aesthetic, and it just isn't. Um, if you actually go back and play Diablo 2, which is actually recently remastered, wasn't it? Um, I believe. And actually, like, there are four worlds that are all just wildly different in terms of aesthetics and the monsters that you fight. There, there's a really structured series of mini bosses and then big bosses at the end of each bit. And then you get a big sort of hooray moment and then you go to the next stage. Everything is refreshed. Everything feels new. Um, and that's like punctures and enlivens the ongoing sort of progression uh, grind that you're actually doing with your character and that you're leveling up all the time, you're killing stuff, you're finding cool items, think about how, whether you should melt them down, whether that they fit your build. That's a, just a really core part of uh, Diablo that I think 4 is actually very good at so far. Um, I think the optimization is much stronger than uh, 3 on launch. But I think the move to a kind of contiguous open world where you're just kind of wandering from area to area and there's actually very little uh, difference between them. Everything feels like a kind of sludge, a a kind of beige sludge, um, just aesthetically as you're wandering through from area to area. Um, There are really cool ideas like each, there are different zones that belong to different classes where Here's the Druid place, and here's the sort of the Assassin place, or whatever. Really good ideas, but I just crave a bit of variety. Mm. Um, it's all just porridge, 
Like it's, um, it's a shame because you can tell that like, the environments, like the textures, the effects, the object design is beautiful. Yeah. But they've had this this very murky aesthetic overlaid on them uh, with like uh, a very murky gray fog that seems to be ubiquitous. Mm. And it just and, and while that is like successfully uh, atmospheric and grimdark, it also is powerfully homogenizing yeah. like it just blurs all of those places it doesn't matter really whether you're in the murky gray tundra or the murky gray steppe or the murky gray forest or the murky gray cave or the murky yep. gray mud realm like uh, I, there were some tombs where there's a, uh, some moss i was so excited and <laughs> you know uh, the, the fact that there are some places which are splashed in gore i'm just like yes thank you people for dying and lending this space a bit of color <laughs> but the, the bones of these places are obviously beautiful and designed with real panache and it but the game's commitment to gray brown fog and a low saturation palette just does not help these places express any kind of innate character to the extent that like you know in other games you could look at an overworld map and you can quickly summon a mental image of which what each zone looks like yeah. i can't do that here at all like the only way no, i can remember what the difference between the zones are is by what enemy type i find there and that's mm. this is like it's a it's a big problem for a game which is top down, because you're immediately by having a top down game, you know, not quite top down, but you're removing immediately any kind of distinctive silhouettes that that environment might lend to the environment to make it identifiable, and so you do need some differentiation in the in the color palette or something else uh, to anchor you to the kind of the the, the feeling of those places. And there's, and I think that is a real misstep, and I realize it's a misstep they've made, presumably in a reaction to all the complete nonsense complaints about diablo 3 being too colorful right and i think but I, and, and i think this is a subtle but very important distinction to make is that the people making those complaints about diablo 3 were cunts and they should not have been listened to <laughs> at all yeah these are people who complained about it and then li- played it for literally thousands of hours <laughs> <laughs> no I, I think that's right um uh, and it, it's pandering to a game that didn't exist exist like that vision of Diablo 2 that was this turgid, like, uh, beige mulch uh, for hours and hours, that's not what Diablo 2 is like at all. And that's not what Diablo 3 is like deliberately because Diablo 3 actually has varied environments and that Diablo 3 has loads of faults. And I still think there's loads of problems pacing and sort of uh, how long each act is and how samey, for example, the heaven area is. Um, all of that stuff, you know, fair enough. But for four to sort of like default to this kind of everything's a kind of a desert <laughs> and um everyone's obviously miserable that is a double thing to be fair a diablo i should say um but like uh, it, it, the thing about diablo is that um humanity's in a purgatory and sort of doesn't realize it and there are these sort of like heavenly and demon demonic forces acting on them all the time and they're living this horrible horrible life and you're there to sort of rescue everyone um, but even in this one, there's no, uh, there are no clear objectives in terms of, am I a hit, even a hero in this world? Like, actually, what am I even doing here? Like, who's my guy? Like, is he or she supposed to be res- rescuing people or defeating things? Like, there's, there's no sort of drive to it. Yeah. Uh, all I and know he, is that Chris Finch from The Office is telling me to do stuff, and I just I just obey <laughs> him whenever he tells me to do anything because he's got the most wonderful voice in the universe. He does have he an does. incredible yeah. voice, though. I mean, I mean, fair enough. I, I would obey him. I, I'm sure as a necromancer. Um, but yeah, actually, so my necromancer is like level forty five now, 
he looks hideous. Uh, I'm very pleased with him. Uh, he's, he's a cool guy. Um, but I kind of, <laughs> I have this vision every time he rocks up to an NPC and I, I maximize my minion count. So I wear stuff that lets me summon ex, extra skeletons and extra sort of skeleton mages and demons and a, a horrible iron golem that is just sort of right behind you. I have so many good screenshots of him just talking to NPCs with this crowd behind him. Uh, and he's like, I'm here to help. <laughs> it's like, yeah. <laughs> what? It, makes, yeah. it kind of makes no sense. The, the world kind of makes no sense. Um, Don't mind one. my abominable horde of darkness. <laughs> just... Please ignore. <laughs> uh, so there's a, that ongoing lack of sense of who I am, which is kind of present in Diablo games but in this one it is it's just sort of like messing around I, I actually i think let's boil it down for me like i think um it's down to the structure i really really think that the the abilities i'm playing with are fun as necromancer i think the necromancer is actually like going online as well is a bit overpowered so i'm having like a pretty positive experience in that respect um i think like the progression in terms of Skills would be. Uh, I love the ability to for free just reset the skills at any time and just rebuild my character. I think that's awesome. Can I you? Think that, I thought you have to pay pay to respect, don't you? Uh, I you do, I'm but not it's not to. very it's not very much. They throw money right. at you in this game anyway. I I've got like four hundred thousand yeah. or something. Yeah, I've got I've got eight hundred thousand. Yeah, I don't quite know what you're supposed to spend money on, but I think it, I think it all end up being gem socketing and stuff and gem merging. That tends to be the money sink in Diablo. Um, but yeah, it's it's very cheap and easy to respec. Uh, my one request to the developers um, would be to just let me take back one point and respend it instead of like resetting all of my points. Uh, but then that's funny. That's just a, a minor thing. But in terms of the progression items, I think optimization is pretty strong. Legendaries drop, um, and they like you could put on a hat that suddenly really affects one of your skills and actually can actually completely change your you know how your build works and they've taken that from Diablo 3 i think that's really strong uh, but as i've been saying in uh like a sort of discord chat between ourselves like there are two parallel kind of uh ideas that need to sort of like work together in an action rpg like this um one is Optimization, character progression, fun skills, building your character, looking cool as well, all of that stuff, like your character basically. And the other is um, like just variety in terms of like aesthetic variety, enemies you're facing, uh, story, great voice acting, cool cutscenes, a sense that you're actually being a hero perhaps, or you know, whatever story you need to tell, at least something. Um, and I think the so far, um, for me, I think like the actual kind of itemization and character building is pretty strong, but all of the other stuff is not good. Hmm. I'd say I, I I don't I haven't found it as positive experience in terms of the itemization. I think it might be that it's just very different between the classes, and I'm playing barbarian, yeah. and that's fundamentally not an interesting class to play. I hmm. don't know, but uh, I I found that I mean. Uh, a part of this is probably because I, I'm not very literate at sort of min-max stuff. Uh, I find all the kind of fine text, choosing between 
skills very difficult to parse and also not interesting and not something that motivates me. Um, but I don't find that the game is offering me a choice between skills that have any meaningful tactical differentiation. Mm. Like a lot of the time, uh, you, you're you're very much trammeled into choosing one sort of tactic, and uh, you have a number of different things that benefit that tactic, and you can put points into them in like some attempt to gain synergy. Um, and that feels like it, the game wants to kind of lock you in pretty quickly. I know you can respec, but like you're, but you you don't end up with a variety of tactics to use. You end up having to choose one of a variety of tactics, uh, even if you can change that choice at a different point. And th- changing that tactic might be interesting if it if it felt different. But you're mm. en- essentially, you end up like, choose. oh, do you choose the wallop skill, which does 82 damage, but it has a 10% chance to crit on enemies have, have over 75 health, and it inflicts the gimbaled status, which means that subsequent noble attacks will do an extra 5% <laughs> damage and stacks up to a max of 8. Or do you choose the drub skill, which does 82 damage, but it has 10% to crit, and so on and so forth. And then, like, aside from the maths of that being completely impossible to parse at a glance, yeah. you try out both of the skills... And it turns out they're basically exactly the same. They do damage in the same, like maybe they do slightly different numbers, and they nice. uh, and, and they Kills they yeah. they key into different status effects. But you're basically doing the same thing. You're being mobbed by a bunch of enemies, and you're pressing the same button, and it does a very similar thing with very little perceptible difference. And like I, the game has never really shown me why I should give a fuck about these different status effects mm-hmm. and the difference between these skills. Um, and like, I'm, I can't remember what level I am. I'm like somewhere between thirty and forty, somewhere in the middle there. I've unlocked a bunch of skills, uh, and I've respect a bunch of times. I've felt very underwhelmed by uh, my what that has allowed me to do, which has been mm. different from all of the other stuff I've done. And part of that is not just um, the barb uh, barbarians skill tree, um, but the fact that none of the enemies doesn't matter whether they're ghouls or they're bats or werewolves or skeletons or goatmen or demons they all pretty much attack the same way and uh maybe a couple of enemies will have spell casters who hang back but by and large there's no group of enemies i've encountered in the entire game so far who've demanded any kind of different tactics from me and i've died a couple of times and i've changed the difficulty back and forth doesn't seem to be much difference between the difficulty settings i do die a little bit more on the harder difficulty but it's not because like different tactics have emerged for me to contend with. It's just that, oh, this time somebody stunlocked me and I, I got a bunch of overlapping attacks on me and uh, I wasn't able to heal because uh, I stunlocked. And, or, or more often, I died because my mind had wandered from the game and I'd simply stopped paying attention. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a bit of an indictment. I just... Uh, and like it took me a long time and like i feel like one of those steam reviewers who've put you know 40 hours into a game whatever and they're like "Eh, it's rubbish but like i needed to play quite a lot of the game before i realized it wasn't opening up it wasn't producing new experiences um so i I found it pretty disappointing overall in that regard but maybe i should probably play one of the other character classes Uh, i wonder if i wonder if that might help i'm playing as a sorcerer and like all the stuff you're saying sort of still applies, but I'm having fun <laughs> with what she does. So, like, what I've done with my build is I've just leaned into the 
frozen and frost and icy uh, powers that she has. And like, there's a whole bunch of words that they throw out there of various states that you can be in. So you can be fr- frozen, you can be frosty, you can be chilled, you can be slightly <laughs> nippy. I you know, there's a whole bunch of like words in there that all have different degradations of, you know, freezing people into ice and stuff like that. Um, and that's actually kind of the build, the way of building a character where I'm just like, oh, well, one of my words here has popped up on this particular skill tree or on this particular item. He's nippy, I'm, get him. Yeah, it very yeah. And then then bring Marsh in with the drub ability. But like uh, <laughs> it's um I'm finding that fun because I don't have to think about it too much because I'm an idiot and I can't do the maths or think about things in an involved way. So I'm just like having fun pumping as many skill points into my various freezy verbs um in order to <laughs> uh, you know, and like so my it, I mean this is the thing sort of what I was saying was like it's it's good and bad at the same time. Like my character runs into a big crowd of people. She fires some snowballs. She does some icy things. She does a big area of attack, ice attack, and then she gets an electro whip out and whips everyone to death. That is literally the fifteen to twenty seconds of gameplay loop that I just repeat for every single enemy, every single boss um, in the game. But I like it. I enjoy it for some reason because. I actually think that the difficulty, for me at least, is tuned really well, that I think it finds a biting point for your skill, um, particularly if you bump it up to the kind of second difficulty. This is just for me, but like the sec- second difficulty that's available, tier two or whatever it's called. I found that a really like solid level of challenge. Not a solid level of challenge, actually. It's still pretty trivially easy, but it's enough of a little kind of... It's got enough claws in it that I, it keeps me occupied and, and and doesn't and stops it from feeling like a clicker game basically hmm. um, do, how, how does failure work for you because that that's my objection to the way that difficulty scales in the game is that failure just uh feels almost just very sudden and arbitrary yeah. and like it, there's there's no kind of gradation where oh i could es- something bad is about to happen to me i can escape from this by employing some th- sort of thought mm. on my part you're either alive and you've won or you're dead and you have to do it again Uh, no you're right and and the game the game basically (laughs) the game itself i assume i'm sure i'm right about this is a long tutorial for the eventual end game when this stuff starts to matter right like it's a whole it's a kind of like you're slowly learning through trivially easy combat and fail states that make no difference over anything how you will eventually engage with the end game of the game, which is supposed to last forever, right? For like a decade more um, and and consume your life entirely. Um, and so I think the game is really, you know, is really doing its best to struggle with, cons- you know, reconciling those two sides of it of like, yeah, the, the first, the, the, the first go through the campaign is basically a walk in the park compared to what we're going to throw at you later. But obviously for a lot of people, like we probably don't intend to play this game for the rest of our life at the exclusion of all other activities. So I think that is a, a it's yeah. a tricky ask. And it you it's know, a, there'll be a version of this game which which would be, you know, much harder than it is right now. Um, and it's the version of the game that you probably unlock on your like third or fourth go round, right? Where you actually have to think about this stuff, and you actually have to build your character in the way that that like um, Path of Exile game does pretty well, I think. Where like you really do have to think about your build, and that gives you periods in the game where it is trivially easy or easier than before, and then that will plateau out, and then you'll end up 
finding it hard again. Um, for me, it's enough. There's enough crunch to it to keep me going, but I can totally understand how, like, actually the kind of early game of this and the first go through it is a little bit discordant with the experience that you kind of want from a game like this. Yeah, it's yeah. a very difficult thing that they're having to design towards, which is that they need to design something which is uh, accessible, but also has enough depth to it that the the kind of insane min-maxers, you know, Diablo lifers will still get something out of it. Uh, <laughs> and that, that's almost impossible, isn't it? And I, I suppose viewed from that perspective, they've done a reasonable job of making it so that um, it's still playable even if you aren't interested in making your build optimal. Um, you can still get through it. Well, Which I think, like, if it was broken into five or six acts quite solidly and you fought some bosses and then, so let's say you pay 60, 70 quid for a game, you go up, you're not necessarily intended to replay the game forever. The sort of like uh, the tiered experience of going up through those progression, through that progression, building your character in a single run isn't strong in this one. Um, like, I, th- I feel so, un- unless you're planning it for, to have it as your sort of second screen game that you're going to be sort of like tinkering with for a few years, I don't think it's, I think it's good for that. But otherwise, I don't think it's good. I don't think it has that immediacy and satisfaction in in one run. Um, yeah. Also, I've people need, keep saying I've needed a podcast to listen to while playing it. Oh yeah, that's <laughs> yeah they sure. should have like pocket cast integration into it, like a wizard who comes along, with his, <laughs> yeah, his mouth sure. opens, and then uh, behind the bastards just comes out of the wizard's mouth. Like, around around. <laughs> um, people keep saying that the story's good. I keep reading that and hearing that and it's really? not. The story's not good, <laughs> and and people in this world really need to stop following people out into the forests in in search of the <laughs> promise of of like true knowledge because it's not ending well for anyone. And it is like thirty to between thirty and fifty percent of the quests are someone saying, "Oh, my old husband is such a lovely fellow, and he met a young lady, and she said she could provide him with knowledge of good and evil and all men." And he followed her out into the woods, <laughs> and I haven't seen him all day. Um, and That's then a you really got good to, old lady accent. That's very you, good. Thank you, I young that. man. I'm <laughs> you available. <laughs> I could do a podcast in this just in this character. Um, Everyone's read a terrible book in this game, and yeah. like. Every character has read the wrong page of a thing or decided to collect all of the poisoned pages into a giant <laughs> evil library and they're very surprised by what happens next. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. The ex- kind of the extent of the plot, really. I mean, <laughs> I you, you can't so deny far. that it has a theme of forbidden knowledge. <laughs> that is a theme. It's it has the a theme. Story. I'm not sure how many Diablo games have had themes before, so that's good. Right. Um, yeah. But I feel like the people of Fact Sanctuary need to start, you know, stop collecting diabolical books of sin. <laughs> Burn the libraries. Yeah. I, I mean, I think uh, the, the people who wrote the the, the, the quests for this um, had a difficult job because there's not much... I mean, there's almost zero Little mechanical differentiation between yeah, the quests. Little and so same. they really have to come up with a lot of reasons to do exactly the same thing as all the other quests. And I, and, and some of them are... are um, you know, within that difficult task context, I think they've done uh, as good a job as they could. Um, also, I feel as though uh, the voice actors are res- like rescuing the script at every point. Like I feel, I feel like this about a lot of games. Like the voice actors are sort of really picking up <laughs> what they, what they've been given and making it work. Uh, 
Yeah, the, the, Chris Finch from The Office. I mean, just any moment he's going to tell me that he's read a book a week. Um, <laughs> but also, the uh, what's she called? Sybil? Is that her name? The the the, the main demon booby lady. Uh, I think she's very well uh, voiced as well. Lilith. Yeah. Tom, talking of uh, other games of the current moment, you know, new new emerging games, I hear you've been playing mm-hmm. uh, something called chess. <laughs> oh, I've been playing way too much chess. Um, it's been a while since I've talked about chess on the podcast. And I kind of, like, when we were organizing the podcast, I wanted to, flag that I wanted to sort of do a chess update for everyone. Um, yeah, chess is, chess is still here. Uh, it's still happening. <laughs> this centuries, centuries old game. Um, and actually, I could have, what's interesting is that obviously the Queen's Gambit happened, uh, the, the show on, uh, I think it was Netflix, and then the, uh, during pandemic, so there's kind of like a conflation of ideas, everyone went online. Chess.com is a, a brilliant resource and a great way to get started with chess. Uh, and obviously, you know, viewer figures skyrocketed for live streamed games um among grandmasters and tournaments uh and like you might think that, that might have died down but more people are watching chess than ever like it's absolutely huge and i just wanted to sort of flag it up as a really cool community to sort of like be part of um because so i'm 37 I'm never going to go anywhere in chess. <laughs> I'm not, I have no aspirations to sort of like win any sort of tournament or, but I sort of, it's such a fascinating, frustrating, irritating, infuriating, compelling game uh, that I've not been able to tear myself away from it for the last sort of three years now. Um, and I really wish I'd sort of started at school when my mind was more malleable and able to sort of like perhaps pick up some of the, some of the concepts. I was playing lots of Go instead, and I love Go, and it is brilliant. But Go doesn't have the infrastructure that chess has. And the great thing about chess is that you can, like, for free on chess.com or uh, Lee Chess, L I C H E S S, obviously, um, you could go to those sites and you can just play games for free. Um, there are puzzles uh which is my favorite part of chess now uh you could do chess puzzles there are loads of kind of like tutorials videos for grandmasters just explaining basics uh and actually you could just look at uh, repeats of games like you could play them like have them on your screen tap you know uh on your mouse or your, or your keyboard go from move to move and see how all of that played out and then look at notation from grandmasters looking at like why this move was played here and why this move was played here uh i just wanted to sort of like reiterate that it's a really really cool thing to get into uh, at the moment to be honest uh if you're like if you enjoy puzzles and sort of <laughs> what was a geometric reasoning almost in terms of how like the pieces interact tactics and, and things like that it's a it's a really good thing to, to, to it's the best free to play game <laughs> it's kind of the top line um do you get unlockable cosmetics on uh, chess.com so if you <laughs> no but if you if you i'm on if you're at premium you could change your background so I, i've got a very posh kind of <laughs> glass pieces and stuff 
<laughs> which is obviously very silly, but you don't need to do that at all. Um, and I would say also the resources online to actually learn how to play chess uh, are just incredible. Like you, you've got international masters and grandmasters putting out just free lessons all the time, um, or just playthroughs of their games. And as they explain them, you can understand the reasoning and actually get insights into how you should perhaps think, think about the board at any given point. It's just incredible stuff. Um, so I just wanted to sort of have a little bit about how good chess is at the moment and sort of recommend a few channels. Like mm. I got started with Levy Rosman, uh, who is Gotham Chess, on YouTube and Twitch. And he's got a actually now like a tutorial site called Chessly. And he he's fantastic. He makes, um, he kind of shout casts chess it makes it really exciting he's relatively sort of spicy and lively for the chess community like you know and i think he's pretty good um the best person at the moment for me is uh daniel naroditsky uh so just daniel yeah daniel naroditsky google that on youtube um go through his sort of like rating climbs his rating ladder climbs uh he is like both Levy and uh, Daniel Naroditsky are both like professional teachers and it really, really shows in the way they produce their content and um, the videos they make. You, you go through the entire games, uh, that's the first half. And then the second half with Naroditsky in particular, like he will delve into chess history and sort of he'll go quite deep into analysis and stuff like that. And I absolutely love it. He, uh, he's absolutely fantastic. Um, if you want like a quick thrill, you've got Ikaro Nakamura, one of the best players in the world, one of the fastest players in the world. I don't think he's particularly great for like learning stuff about chess, but watching him play is amazing. Like uh, you can just tune into his Twitch screen. Um, you can tune into his YouTube, go back through his catalog and just watch him just solve puzzles and just beat people in literally seconds. You will just literally defeat grandmasters in seconds. It's amazing to watch. Um, so yeah, uh, I just want to sort of like give an overview of really cool resources, uh, really f fun people to visit and follow. Um, and also just like chess.com is still really good. Chess is still really good. And both of those like you get involved for free and it's really cool. So I, I don't know it's a good thing. Yeah. That sounds like a cool way to end the podcast, I think, an update on that. And also, unusual uh, that chess.com, a site which is the actual <laughs> noun of the thing, isn't actually a <laughs> yeah. bag of shit that's covered in ads and so, so forth. It's, it's kind of... I, I, I've been trained to expect by the internet that uh, the, the best URLs always house the sketchiest uh, content. But yeah, it's like the right people got the domain early. <laughs> It hasn't been bought by EA and <laughs> turned into a really <laughs> annoying app. <laughs> cool. Thank you for that, Tom. I will probably never play chess because I'm too stupid, but I I, 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 I wish I was. <laughs> I wish I wasn't. I, I, I will warn um, people that chess will always make you feel stupid. I feel <laughs> stupid almost every time I play chess. So part of the, part of the deal. Well, I think that's probably the whole podcast that we're going to do today. Is that right, gents? I should think so. Yeah, sounds good. 
If you would like to watch these recordings as videos, you can do so on youtube.com slash Crate and Crowbar. And thanks as always to our backers on Patreon. You can back us too at patreon.com slash Crate and Crowbar, or you can join our lovely Discord community, the link for which is on our website, crateandcrowbar.com. Thanks for listening to this Brexit special. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've been Marsh Davis. I've been Jamie Brexit Britain. <laughs> and I've been Tom Senior. Goodbye. Night. See ya. <laughs>